The Ally Adapted Cataract System is the world's first and only dual-pulse femtosecond laser. Ally is changing the paradigm in cataract surgery with a series of industry firsts, all in a single system. Ally fits in every OR with a compact, unique design that enables a sterile flex procedure, increasing efficiencies and improving the patient experience. Using Lenzar's adaptive intelligence, Ally optimizes the femto treatment with a goal of reducing procedure times and optimizing laser energy used in the eye. Increased efficiency, improved patient and surgeon experience. To find out how the unique capabilities of Ally can enhance your cataract practice, request a demo today. Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. Today, I have the honor of sitting down with Dr. Dee Stevenson, a luminary in the field of ophthalmology. She has been in private practice since 1989 in Venice, Florida. She specializes in cataract surgery and has been at the forefront of research She's also served as the president of the American Board of Eye Surgery and is a past president of ACES, the American College of Eye Surgeons. She's also been recognized on the premier 300 Surgeons Innovators list and in Who's Who in Ophthalmology. She's a founding member of Aspens, of now the Cedars Aspen Society, as well as ACOS, and she's a force in the field advocating for gender equality and serving as a role model for the next generation of ophthalmologists. Well, Dee, thank you so much for joining us today. You're my first in-person interview here on the History of Eye Care podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into ophthalmology and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, Morgan, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Ophthalmology is a family and it is a incredible place to have a career. And I always wanted to be a doctor. So ophthalmology didn't come until I was in medical school and I assisted the chairman of the department, Bill Layden at USF. And he was a tyrant, and most people didn't like him, but I loved him because he reminded me of my dad a bit. And you just did what he said. So he was so kind enough to give me co-authorship on a chapter in a book on glaucoma and cataract because I did research with him for three years. And he's the one in the reason he was my first mentor in ophthalmology, and he was really a remarkable man, Air Force guy, glaucoma specialist, just a really wonderful guy once you got to know him. And I did my training, I went to medical school at USF, and I did my ophthalmology training at USC in Columbia, South Carolina, albeit a small program. There are only two residents per year, and they sent us to Wills for the first three months, and they sent us to University of Texas for a month. The specialties that they didn't cover, they made sure that we got coverage and, and learned about the different things. You know, to, to go ha- take an optics course from Jack Halliday is a wonderful thing. And to also go to Wills to take your basics at the very beginning of ophthalmology. So it was absolutely wonderful. And so many people asked me, because originally I wanted to be an OBGYN, but eyeballs were just so cool. And I always examined people's eyes. I liked doing it. Everybody else in my class thought it was creepy. So it was pretty fun. And four people in my 
graduating class went into ophthalmology, which is a lot. That's a lot. Three guys and me. And all three of them stayed at USF except for me. And they only take three people, which I thought was kind of interesting. But I got in a great program because the surgical is connected. It's on the same property as, as USC. There's a VA hospital. So all of our patients were inpatients. So we had state-of-the-art equipment. So it was wonderful. And my next mentor, if you will, is John Wells. And he was in private practice in the community. His son now is the chairman at USC. But Johnny passed away a couple of years ago. But he taught me many, many things, but mostly how to be a kind human being and a kind doctor. And he taught me many things. But the one specific thing that he taught me that's never failed me is every night before cataract surgery, I call the patients on the telephone and I speak to each of them, whether I have three cases or 30 cases. I call them the day of surgery. And then of course I see them the following morning and it's never failed me. And he's always in the back of my mind when I do those extra things. And really and truly it's probably the best lesson I've ever learned just about how scary it is to have surgery. And I went into private practice. I didn't stay to do a fellowship because it just wasn't a good fit to stay in Columbia. Dr. Wells encouraged me. He said, go be a great cataract surgeon. You're on your way already to be a great cataract surgeon. Go to Florida and just tear it up because I wanted to go home. And when I went home, I looked at places to go. And of course, I'm from the West Coast of Florida, born and raised in Florida. And I went to the East Coast of Florida to Port St. Lucie where they needed an ophthalmologist. You know, had an office already. I got the ne- my next door neighbor was a guy I went to medical school with, so his, he was a family practice guy. So his wife was my secretary. Girl Friday, everything. I took a tech with me from my residency program who worked for me for twenty five years, wow. and so I was there for a year. And then towards the end of that time, I just didn't really like the East Coast, and I had an opportunity to move to the West Coast of Florida. And also, at that time, I had a life changing thing happen to me. I was having a little back trouble, and I had been a swimmer and a ballerina, and you name it. I love to dance. And I went to the doctor, had an MRI, and had a lipoma the size of a grapefruit and a tethered cord on my spinal column. So I had a some leg weakness. So I, I went to University of Florida, and after a seven-hour surgery, I was released. And you know, after spending ten days in the hospital, then I had to learn how to walk and go to the bathroom and all that all over again. And then I joined a guy in practice in Venice. Well, that was 1989, and he was in the Florida House of Representatives. So essentially, I just kind of killed what I ate or ate what I killed. Right. And he was in the Florida House of Representatives and he wasn't there. And I was coming from Port St. Lucie over when Congress was in session. A lady set me up with this who knew all these doctors. And that's also a turning point because I met these two ophthalmologists, these Renaissance men, Joe Giovinco and Maurice Haddad. They were both intra, you know, intracap surgeons. And Maurice Haddad took my tonsils out when I was five years old, and I taught him how to do extra caps. So you talk about a small world. So I learned so much from that year. And then I, Dr. Thomas said, you know, why don't you come over here and join me? And I did. And I've never looked back. So I've been in Venice now for September will will be 34 years. But during my journey, I was just a general ophthalmologist and didn't care about astigmatism, didn't care. You know, there weren't, I was kind of right in that area where people were doing RK. I bought the instrumentation. I didn't do RK. I didn't do LASIK. I was kind of not really fumbling because I had a very successful business. But the cool part was that I got introduced to some of the most incredible people in the world by some of the reps. And I, and I got to meet Ralph Berkeley. I got to meet Gail Martin. Alan Aker and Dr. Doug Williamson, and I'll mention him in just a minute, but 
I met these people, you know, John Sheets, these incredible people that I became a member of ACES. And it was the most wonderful thing I'd ever done because here are all my heroes and sheroes, Lisa Officer and Ralph. Ralph was just, he's that Renaissance man that never, ever, ever put anybody first except the patient. And he was kind and he was a great surgeon. He shared his techniques by showing you how you can learn from your mistakes. So I was so privileged to know Ralph and to know Gail Martin. And I was also invited to be a member of C. So I had some experience that a lot of folks haven't had by being able to actually rub elbows with them and be in the OR with them. And as a professional, you know, and, and yet they're my mentors and, you know, I'm sweating bullets because I'm standing next to Ralph Berkeley. So it was quite wonderful. But little did I know in my, own, my new hometown of Venice, I was welcomed by a bunch of general surgeons, a good old boy group, but there was one ophthalmologist locally that had been there forever. And everybody said, oh, you should meet Doug Williamson. Well, he sought me out. And he became someone that I just admired the heck out of. And he just passed away March 24th, 2022. He was 94. He practiced for 42 years. He had, in my little town of Venice, he opened the first outpatient surgery center in 1970. I mean, oh my God. And he founded Boost and was the first president of Boost 41 years later. You know, I mean, 41 years ago in 1982. And I mean, he went to Congress in front of the FDA to get reimbursement for cataract surgery done as outpatient. And in 1970, the first outpatient cataract surgery was performed in my town, literally two blocks from my office. I did not know that. Yeah, well, a lot of people, he was very quiet and soft-spoken. He didn't really want to be in the in the public eye. However, if you think about what he did, he was also one of the people that instructed Orbis to get off the ground, to go, to go to these countries, to teach these doctors, to treat their patients so that everybody learned and all the patients, you know, were great. He was also an avid scuba instructor. And he was like on the rescue, started the first rescue team, aquatic rescue team for the Sarasota County. And he invented many masks to make vision clearer in the, in the water, in the Gulf, especially because it's muddy. And his lab, his optical lab made these masks. So this guy was just, I mean, unbelievable. And he had a signature. He was an intercap surgeon. He would not apologize for it. He was adored by his patients. I always knew who his patients were when they came to me. They had beautiful surgery done, the ACIOL perfectly centered, but he used tenoproline to close the eye. So he had three proline sutures. Now the other ones, the other six or eight sutures that were in the eye were nylon. He removed those, but he never took out the proline sutures. So at the very beginning of my practice, I did penetrating corneal transplants. And I, I did probably 30 a year from all these patients that had, had intercaps and not thinking it's a, it's just a change in time. It's how we've motivated our life to be different right. in the intensity with which ophthalmology changes. But he was very gracious. And I went to his outpatient surgery center. I also went to David Brown's and, and Alan Akers, like I said earlier. And so I got a taste of what it would be like to own your own surgery center. And, you know, it was something that I, I just worked at the hospital. What was an outpatient surgery like for a patient back then? Dr. Williamson's Venice Eye Clinic was the first of its kind. And it was pretty neat. I think they had two OR suites, but it was, you know, you were there for hours right. and pre-op and post-op. But very similar to how it's worked today. However, it's just more efficient. There's 9,000 more people employed and it, the turnover is much quicker. It's just the same thing on, on steroids, if you will. 
But the equipment, you know, when you think about, he was an intercapsular surgeon. So you make an ice ball in your room, shove a lens in, throw about 10 sutures in, and you're out of there. And he was a pretty fast surgeon. I mean, he did, yeah. he did an intercap in 20 minutes, I mean, or less. Right. So it was, he was very efficient, but he had it down. He was the guy. He had it down to a science. And I did watch him do intercaps, and he was a beautiful surgeon. I mean, really and truly a beautiful surgeon. And, I, and you know, it's hard to say to somebody that's that successful, why don't you change to extra caps at least? And I would never have done that. And he had a great career, and he, he retired in 2005. And I think he slowed his surgery down, but he still did his diving and he still did his service community in Orbis and Usen. And I kind of lost touch with him until about four or five years ago. And then he became my patient. He and his wife became my patients. So I got to know him again. And I knew him professionally, but, you know, he was, he got awarded all kind of awards and stuff, but he was a very soft-spoken guy, very mellow and like Ralph, eloquent when he spoke, but didn't go out of his way to tell you what he did. So it's been an interesting time. And ophthalmology has been very good to me. And after 33 years, you know, my father died in 2007. That's when I decided. And my dad said, you've done good, baby. On your 50th birthday, you need to be in Paris under the Eiffel Tower. And you also need to up your game to stay in business, to be always on the cutting edge and never apologize for being successful. So that's when about 2007 is when I ran into Nick Curtis, another friend and, and mentor. And he said, you need this. He introduced me to Aura where I met Michael Breen. Well, I knew Michael Breen a little bit before that with, with Crystallins, but you know, where I got to be intimate with WaveTech and had the orange. I was the first person to purchase, commercial purchase of Aura, which was orange at the time in the United States. And of course, Bill Wiley got his a couple of days after mine, which I laugh at because he's another one, even though younger, he's such an incredible surgeon and has sat on the phone with me during my surgery when I'm not understanding what's some of the readings going on. So, you know, I've got some colleagues that are just incredible. And I don't know what other field allows this. So I changed my game and I hopped on to Aura not long after that. I was introduced to some other technologies. Can, and we, can we talk about Aura for a second? Sure, sure, you know, sure. For, for some of the listeners who may not know about Aura, you want to you tell us a little bit about Aura, why it was a game changer for you? And, for, and for for the me, well, the cool part about Aura was it was you could take a reading of the eye in the aphakic mode and you could see the magnitude of astigmatism and the axis of astigmatism. You could calculate your implant and then you could tell where your torque incisions needed to be made or whether later on where the, they were aligned. And it was a game changer for me because you didn't, I didn't realize at the time how important astigmatism was. And 80% of patients have some kind of astigmatism, you know, and, and half a doctor of astigmatism can be game changing. Absolutely. But it allowed me to go forward with TrueLine, which was a premium accommodated lens at the time. And then it allowed me to do some other things with Aura. It changed my outcomes. I mean, I, I was getting, you know, everybody wants LASIK-like outcomes. And I was getting 98% within a half a diopter of residual astigmatism. And then I got even better where I had 98% a quarter or less. So it has really changed my game. I still use it. There are some other modalities out there. Zeiss has one and Cassini is working on one and it's great, but it's not intraoperative aberrometry. And there's a big difference. There's, it was, we used to tease at WaveTech, the WTF factor, the WaveTech factor. And that's a formula that actually takes all this stuff into consideration. And it actually helps better for you to know where effective lens position is. And it allows you to place that toric lens and right on. And it also allows, if you keep the cornea pristine, to know what you induce astigmatically or stigmatically, and then to know what your 
variables are. And you can really hone that down. You've got to put data in and you've got to put data in after you do your surgery. Because if you don't know where you start, you don't know where you end, you can't change anything. And Oris made me a better, made me a better doctor, paying attention to detail. And some people say, oh, I don't know why it's a waste of time. It's gotten me through so many things. So I'm a believer and there are those naysayers and that's fine. We all do it differently. So it, it changed the way I did ophthalmology. In fact, they wanted me to do a study and I, Michael Breen laughs at this because I said, I, I can't put a torque lens in a patient without aura. I can't do that. I don't want to be in this study. Because I was going to have to do it without Aura, just doing it from my measurements. And, you know, that's scary when you've been using Aura for a long time. And then you realize how off a lot of these people's surgery is. You don't know that until you start looking at your results. Yeah, so and there's it, some great studies that show oh, that absolutely. surgeons are not as good at hitting the target as, as we think we are. Absolutely. And we're not as good at everything as that we say we are. You know, but the proof's in the pudding. And for young listeners... What you do, you've got to put it in a databank. You've got to make sure that you follow through with it so that you know where you started. You've got to stop. Sure. So Aura was a game changer. And then, of course, later on, I was a really early adapter of Linzar. And what a great company that is by. And, and Nick, again, Nick Curtis, again, was the person that got me into using Femto because he said, you should have a Femto. And I said, yeah, I should. You know, and it was something, ah, no, that's for the big guys that do all 2,000, 3,000 cases a year. And that wasn't me. Oh, my gosh. It's been a game changer. It's made me enjoy cataract surgery again. You know, it's not so rote. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about Femto? Because we've it's been mentioned on the show, but mm-hmm. we haven't really actually talked about it much. Well, I don't know the history of Femto is probably as well as I should. But what I do know the history of is Lenzar's Femto. And the beauty of it is the fact that it's a small company and they listen to the doctors. So the engineers and the doctors are best of friends. They've made so many changes, upgrades, you know, in teleaxis. Marks on the cornea, little marks that aren't, you can see them and you can see them probably for a year after, but then they go away. So that's marking the cornea. But because it gave you aberrations and it was, you didn't get a good reflex, they then decided to put those little little nubs on the capsule. So that allowed us to actually see without parallaxis, it allowed us to see where our lens was aligned. So I think, and of course, AIs, Femto AIs are much more accurate than freehanded AIs or liberal relaxing incisions because they're closer in, you know, like a 4.5 or 4.3 radius. So they're a little further in, so they have more bang for the buck. And it makes beautiful AIs because they're perpendicular. They're perpendicular to the cornea. They're not at an angle. So you open all of them. And it's just really made doing cataract surgery and getting rid of astigmatism really kind of a a new art. And, you know, they've worked on all kinds of things. And doing a capsulotomy with with freehand is fabulous. And I love it because I have, I I still do it with assistatome. That's how I was taught. But the beauty of the femto is that you now have a really kind of effective lens position, if you will. You know, and you know the size of your capsulotomy. However, not every patient does it stay that way. But at least you start out as with the best information that you've got and you finish your surgery and the patient's pretty happy. So that's kind of my history of getting into Femto. And the one thing that's been really interesting, too, is to see the changes in the education of the patient and the journey that we have as the doctor and the surgeon and the patient to make that journey so wonderful for a patient. We mentioned Femto and we, we mentioned Aura. Are there other innovations you feel like in your career, looking back, that were big game changers? An extra cap to, to FACO, which is where I was you know, when I graduated. So I'd already done FACO. So it was wonderful. But we still had to open the incision 
to put an implant in. We didn't have the foldable lens until Star or Chiron came out, and then Star shortly after that with a with a foldable lens. And it's amazing too that you think of all the changes with the intraocular lenses. I mean, I wasn't a restore or resume because I, I was a person that you don't split light with these multifocal lenses. But now with the Clarion material and the change, that's been a great add for me. The other things when you talk about innovation, to me. OCT, you know, and Stephen Kleiss, you have to give credit to him. The OCT of the macula is so much better than the naked eye. Even with a condensing lens and your indirect and your direct, you cannot see what the OCT can show. So I think that in the past, we've missed many epiretinal membranes. So I would have to say that OCT for me is, as an anterior segment surgeon has made me so much aware of what a mild amount of epiretinal membrane can or can't do. But if it's there and you see it and you tell the patient, you document it, and the patient doesn't see quite as good, you can advise the patient that you may not get the best benefit from a particular implant. But if you didn't say it was there, they're going to say you caused it. Exactly. And, I love that. Yeah. I, I love that. That's such a great point. Looking at the macula with an OCT really took us to a different just level, a different level in Absolutely. terms of our outcomes because we could, and as our calculations get better and the lenses get better and the technology on FACO gets better, but to really rule out people who, they just weren't going to get the same benefit from a multifocal. I feel like that was something that even in the last couple of decades where it's been, it's now become common practice where, hey, everyone gets an OCT before right. a premium lens. I, before know, any, even before any I, be, I do it before, right? any, before it, any If they have a diagnosis, I, I bill it. If they don't, you don't. And if I lose money from it, it gives me better outcomes on my patients. So I don't even think about it that way, you know. And, and it's only me. I'm a solo practitioner. Yeah. Done it for 33 years, almost 34. And I'm my own keeper, so to speak. But the innovation, so that innovation has changed. And then the ability to diagnose dry eye, not so much treat it, but evaporative dry eye, being able to see a video of what things look like on your cornea. Cassini's new software shows you take a seven second or a 15 second video, actually have the patient blink and see where the Purkinje images, where the dry spots are. You can actually show that to the patient. We've got the diagnostics with tear check where you can do nine things. You can look at the, the lids for Dimidex. You can look at the tear breakup time. And it's not a, it's an objective thing because you can actually capture it instead of counting one, two for the breakup time because they all break so up. So is that what you used to do? So before yeah. we had yeah. all these oh, innovations, yeah. it was just straight yeah. tear breakup time. Yeah, tear breakup time and then, you know, your tear lab. And, you know, right. I did all the other things too. Sure. I do all the other things too. But at the time when I first started, no, it was just Shermer test. You know, Shermer test with and without hypothetic, looking at the tear breakup time and looking at how crappy the cornea looked, you know, so that was it. And now we have Cassini that has a beautiful armamentarium of dry eye ability with their machine. We also have eye trace. Their new upgrade will have areas that they can actually show where the dry spots are. So these are things that are allow us to show the patient and then treat them and then show the improvement. And none of those things are covered by insurances, but it is what it is if it helps the patient. But tear check, on the other hand, you can bill for it. Take external photo because you're taking an external photo. And then for the treatment of it, it's got a, a portable laser that you can carry and it's half the price or a third of the price of some of these other things. So it's a really great product. So I would say FACO, Femto, OCT, dry eye abilities, and then if you're lucky enough, where Zeiss's Isle Master 700, you know, the Star, the new one that Alcon partnered with, you know, there are all these new biometers that can help you and they all have the updated formulas. So it helps, makes your job a little bit easier. For instance, the Zeiss Isle Master 700 has measures the whole length of the eye and the macula. So when you're looking through something, when I'm reviewing my charts, 
if I don't have access to their OCT, I've got an access to their OCT right on my my all master. And then the other game changer I think would be having Sice has the veracity. BNL is coming out with one. Cassini has one too that they're working with, but these are planners. Planners and they pull information from your electronic medical records. So that's a lot you don't get in trouble by flip-flopping numbers. So right. it's a lot more accurate and it makes things a lot better. So the most exciting thing about ophthalmology is just the fact that it changes daily. And to look back on 34 years, where did that go? Where did that go? Because I remember sitting in a room, looking at Dick Lindstrom, thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I'm in the same room with him. And I was asked by him and Howard Fine to give the, my first lecture ever on a Bosch and Loma intraocular lens and invited to go to the Hawaiian Eye Meeting. And Howard Fines shook my hand and said, good job, gal. And Dick Lindstrom said, you're on your way. And I mean, these are, I will never forget that with Dick. You know, I'm, yeah. I mean, there's so many people and you don't realize when you're in the battlefield of becoming an ophthalmologist, when you're a resident, a fellow, you're in your first parts of your career, you're starting a family, or you're having a family and you've got to wear so many hats. You don't have time to stop and smell the roses. And then when you're in a group like ACES, and Abe's, when you have the ability to be with these these incredible men and women, you have to stop and smell the roses and realize what's been handed down. And I hope that I'm not ready to retire by any stretch of the imagination, but I just had my first grandchild. So things are different. But what I want everybody to know is if you don't love what you do, and you don't love where you live, then don't do it. But ophthalmology, I don't know anybody that's ever just thrown in the talent ophthalmology and said, I don't want to do this. Because it's fabulous. It is. It's We have so much innovation. You've alluded to so much of it and even talked about it. One thing I did want to mention is, so FACO, you you said, was really starting out or starting up when you were getting started. Mm -hmm. I learned FACO in my my residency. In residency. Mm -hmm. So I remember stories that that Ralph Berkeley told me about when he learned FACO. Mm -hmm. You know, he was considered a cowboy. Oh, yeah. And the FACO surgeons were really, I mean, they were looked down upon. People went after them, the different organized societies right. frowned upon FACO that you're doing things that are, you're damaging the cornea. I mean, I, I, I know that Ralph Berkeley was brought in front of the medical board oh, yes. two or three times right. for doing FACO emulsification. Right. right. Exactly. Know, it's fascinating to think about. So when you think back on it, you were, you were being taught FACO in residency, but prior to that, do you remember any of that? Yeah. I know that Howard Fine and Kalman, of course, you know, were the guys for that. And I, I mean, go, I went to FACO courses because I had a young cornea guy come in Davis, and he lives in North Carolina. He's a cornea specialist. And he wanted to do cataracts, so he let me do cornea. So I got to do his PKPs, and he let me do cataracts. But what he allowed me to do was FACO. And, you know, I was chief, so I was allowed to do that. But I don't know if my cohort got to do any FACO. And then you do it in your residency, and then you go into private practice, and you go, oh, my goodness, I don't feel comfortable. That's why I went to see Ralph. That's why I went to see David Brown. That's why I went to see Alan Aker. Alan Aker was a game changer for me. I mean, he was about... Um, he was about patient experience. He was, it was so beautiful and he had such a nice office and he, his wife was his partner and they did beautiful surgery and Alan was a perfectionist. So he kind of held my hand for a few years and I will also have to give a lot of credit to Harry Grabo. And a lot of people don't know who Harry is. He's kind of dropped off, but he was the star guy. He put the, all the star plate lenses in and he did the ICLs. So he was in that study in my area and I had to call him to take one out. I'd never seen, you know, I'd only seen him in the eye. I'd never put one in and it's not my patient population. So there's so much. And I didn't realize 
how much is right in my area. And I will have to give David Shoemaker a shout out because he's incredible and he has built an incredible kingdom and, you know, and, and offices all, you know, all over the state, you know, it, but it's, it, we've got some fabulous David Brown. I mean, to do stop and chop or, or fake a flip and, and the stuff he did, it was incredible. And when you're already in practice and you get to see this, you go, oh my God, there's so much difference between what I learned and what I'm learning right now. But you don't have the ability to add two and two to get four yet. You've got to crawl before you walk and walk before you run and got to run a lot before you fly. And hopefully we can hand, I can hand some of this down to people coming after me. And, and I think you all, your, your age group and, and a little bit younger too, they're all about everybody doing, if we all do well, then we're, and Bill Travers, the big cheerleader for that, you know, he wants everybody to be happy and everybody to do well. And if you can't bring someone up, then don't talk about them. Don't say negative stuff. I think if we everybody brings everybody up, it's amazing that this this is a long career and a happy career. And I, you know, I will go out on top of my game, but I still, you know, I just uh, you know, I just stepped off a couple of three months ago, four months ago to the LAL. I put my first IC8s in. I think I put five in so far. So you know, yeah. really, it's really. I mean, I, I, every day there's something else to do. You know, oh, I'm you know locking this patient in, and they're they're so happy with their vision. So it's out there and there's more stuff coming, more stuff. And I'm so happy to be part of all of it. It's about the experience for patient and being that I'm a boutique practice, about 86% of my, 85, 86% of my patients are premiums. You have to make the whole experience kind of neat. And my office is in an old home. It's got hardwood floors. It's beautiful. 1926 Italian Renaissance home right on the corner across the street from the hospital. But we put up screens we took the magazines off the wall and hung pictures and we took the carpet up it was just the plain floor and yet we never it always looked tidy and clean and now what we should do is go to germany and see eric's place and then saradia in england because these europeans have these of course zaldivar and i mean those are like I mean, that's like better than any home in homes and gardens. I mean, those are incredible surgery centers where you, you, you know, the, all the glass doors automatically open. You fog the glass so that the patient, then you bring it up when the patient's done. You know, just it's pristine, but it, you don't feel like you're in a surgery center. And I'm in an HCA surgery center where I'm a part owner. HCA has 51%, doctor has 49%. And it's multi-specialty. So I do well by with that investment. But they are absolute awesome cataracts place could be a lot of cataracts there i mean i have an incredible team for which i cannot do what i do without them but i think it speaks to the patient experience and that's oh, yeah. i think the other thing i mean yeah. vance touched on this a little bit just the evolution of the patient experience oh gosh yes and right. look at his place in his office and i mean he's just he's the guy you know he is just as sweet and kind as he could possibly be and i mean look at john bergdahl i mean look, look at his fellows that you know and look at his his new associates, partners, you know, I mean, it's just what an incredible environment. And I mean, it's, it's a dream, you know, it's a dream. And these guys took it to the next level. I mean, Zaldivar's took it to the next level. Unbelievable what they've done. And then you can even revert a little bit and go to Argoval to Ash and his dad. And I mean, and I mean, in India, and I mean, they're getting ready. They're a new hospital. Hopefully they've broken ground. We'll be finished in 2024 because they've outgrown theirs. But the massive amount of modern day surgery that they do in an old facility with 18 people in a room in, in flip-flops 
and they have a protocol that these patients don't get eye infections. Right. It's unbelievable. So there's two sides to those coins, you know, but they have that massive doing. I mean, they, I can't remember what Amir told us, uh, Amar told us how much cataract surgery they did, but unbelievable. Worldwide, they do more than anybody worldwide. Right. And, you know, I think that's something that's, I've kind of harped on this, I think almost in every episode about right. how we as cataract surgeons, as ophthalmologists, we have to start doing more cataract surgery to take care of our aging population. Oh, absolutely. We have to. Absolutely. You know, or we're going to start losing productive members of society. Right. And we need them. Exactly. Right? And absolutely. And my mother is 92 and she had her cataract removed about six months ago by Neil Desai, one of my colleagues and friends. And he was so wonderful to her. But my mother, and when her cataracts went bad, but like 2050, but she's 2025 with nothing. 2025 with the finest quarter. Right. And she's so happy. I mean, it's just her card game's better. She plays bridge two or three days a week. She didn't give up her car, but only because she just didn't like driving around town. But you still, know? even even yeah. 2050, though, yeah. it's not, it doesn't sound terrible. But, it, you know, anything worse than 2040 in the geriatric yeah, population, the risk of falls. Oh, absolutely. Is, you know, and my mom's right. like, in, you know, she's awesome. She's right. awesome. She's not 92. When you look at her, she doesn't look 92 and she doesn't act it. Right. But you're right. And then, you know, and you don't, until your family starts, to, until you start to feel all of this interpersonally, you know, that some member of your family is getting older and, and needs cataracts or needs a hearing aid or needs whatever, I don't think you, I think you look at it entirely different. And it's when, it's also when you and I know we've picked the right specialty to help people in general, because what's better than giving them better sight? There isn't anything better to me. And I mean, it's like, it makes it all worthwhile, yeah. all worthwhile. Absolutely. So you're really involved with ACEs and ABEs or ABES, right? Mm -hmm. You want to tell us a little bit about those? Cynthia had mentioned them in in a prior episode. Sure. Uh, You know, ACEs, I've been a member for, I think it's a 25-year-old, 26-year-old, even older than that. I've probably been five years since I was president, so it's probably a 30-year-old organization. But it was a group of people that were, what you said earlier about being a cowboy, that wanted to think outside the box, that wanted to show the world that there's 10 ways to skin a cat. And just because you learned it this way doesn't mean you can't do it more efficiently and safer to the patient, i.e. in walks Ralph Berkeley, in walks Alan Aker, in, in Gail Martin, but he was with C. But John Sheets, these guys, Beckert Hook, you know, Lisa Aubrey, I have to put Lisa in there because she was the only woman. Lisa Aubrey, all these people thought outside the box and they wanted people to come with original ideas and talk about it and have a discussion and not necessarily that we agree with you hundred percent, but just, Oh, this is a different way to look at stuff. And then the Abe certification was the American board of eye surgery. And it's still a functioning board. We're not doing this anymore. And I, I am actually, there is no other president of Abe's currently. So I'm, I'm still the acting the lifelong. <laughs> president of Abe's. <laughs> We're going to change that up here. But what that used to do is do a board certification and we did it in cataract. We ended up doing it in refractive, LASIK, and they did a bunch of it. And you were, you videoed your cases. You had somebody from the ACES board come in and watch you do surgery. Then we critique them. We don't have a name on the video. And we critique, there's so many of us that critique the videos. Would you want this person to be in, in your group or not? And, and they had a resident video competition that they don't do anymore. A lot of people don't do this anymore because it's really time-consuming, and I did it forever. And if you think about this, Austin Parak, he's in Kentucky. Gary Wirtz, I believe, but Lance Ferguson, I forgot about him. He was an original ACEs guy, or shortly thereafter, original ACEs guy, and just an incredible surgeon and fellow and human being. So you go to a meeting like that with all these big thinkers, and you listen to them talk, 
and it inspires you to what I want to be part of that group. So long ago, I became part of that group and have never, we used to have these incredible, when you were certified, they gave you this beautiful calligraphy wall hanging and we had a, everybody dressed up in gowns and monkey suits and we had a dinner and it, and it was just wonderful. Now it's so much more casual because the world is so much more casual, but it was a big deal. It was probably the most, and being certified by Abe's was probably the most honorable thing I ever, ever received until I received the, an award from OWL. But I mean, that was probably the, the most wonderful thing. I mean, cause it, you just felt like you were part of a group that was so advanced and Charlie or Chuck Williamson, you know, Chuck, Chuck is one of those guys that he came in with a flair. He talked about this crazy stuff and he always had these incredible videos, but you learn every time he was around, you learn something. And he you talk about knowing history. Chuck knows the history of all kinds of stuff. Cause he's We're really, definitely gonna have he's Chuck really a Renaissance guy it's definitely and he's a nut. And that's the thing he paints and you know, he has a huge family and there's such talent. We have musicians that are ophthalmologists in my group and Abe's group, Ace's group. You know, we have, chefs and we have experts in bourbon and experts in tequila and <laughs> sommeliers, you know, Cynthia Matosian, yep. all three of those. Wow. And, you know, just these, this is a bunch of really great people. And that's what I, I wanted to have a life that was full and ophthalmology is three quarters of my life. And the other quarter is my family, my daughter and, and my son-in-law and my new grandbaby and my mother and my father. By the way. Yes. Thank you. But it's also, if you spend three fourths of your time you better pick people that you like hanging out with. And, and for the most part, there isn't one of them that I don't like hanging out with. At least like at this ACOS group or the Cedars Aspen, we have a wonderful group of entrepreneurial ophthalmologists as well. You know, some of, the, in my opinion, some of the best of the best in the United States. And it's incredible. So I, I think that we're lucky to have seen the changes that we've seen. And now to take cataract surgery from a beautiful outpatient facility into uh, office-based is wonderful. And I think that, or simultaneous cataract surgery, uh, bilateral simultaneous cataract surgery, you know, there's going to be a term for that, you know, that will hopefully benefit the patient. But all those changes, some of those changes, I don't know if I'll do, but they're there. And, and many people I know have been in-house, they're in-office surgery center. So it's incredible how much has changed in my young career, if you will. <laughs> you know, 35 years seems like, or 34 years seems like a long time, and it is, but it's not from what ophthalmology's come. So. Right. When you have people that were around that have seen all of these changes, those are the ones. I mean, Dr. Williamson was 94 when he passed. And for him to talk about where it started. And my other mentor, Dr. Giovinco, he put the first choice IOL in a child. Wow. And I taught him how to do extra caps. I mean, how cool is that? You know, so it's teacher, student, teacher, student. And that, you know, the balance of it's not about age, it's about experience but it's about time goes on. And if, you know, if you want to stay balanced and the cool part about these old guys, they want to know new right. things. They just need somebody to be patient with them. So why not? It makes our subspecialty so wonderful. Absolutely. I don't know this. I know Ralph talked about ACEs and Aves and, and mm -hmm. C. Mm -hmm. Do you know the reason behind the C, C or, and, and ACEs? Like what, what was the driver behind forming that group? Well, the driver behind the ACEs group, if they could get together with these crazy ideas, they wouldn't be looked at as cowboys or whatever okay. you want to call it. You know, they wanted to think outside the box. So they formed their own group. C, on the other hand, Society of Excellence and Eye Care, is more of the political piece to ACES, Abe, C. Healthcare policy. Health, healthcare policy. Yeah. We have our own, you know, Alan and Allison, you know, they've been so good with, with both groups, but they're really, they were really, because Alan was get one of Gil Martin's dearest friends. And what they did is they fought to have a relationship between optometrists 
an ophthalmologist and they changed how you could share care. So they're really the political arm or, or the how we're going to get the FDA to approve this kind of thing. Right. And it allowed us to be an honest group. You know what I mean? And, and it was always, Gail thought there's got to be a better way that we can make the patient experience. It's all about the patient experience, the patient's experience better because we're in areas in the South anyway, where they don't have access to Gail Martin, but they have access to a good optometrist that can then get them to the appropriate person. So I think that's all Gail ever wanted. And talk about a life taken too soon because he had such an incredible plans for the future. And it's wonderful when they can live to be quite old, like Ralph and Dr. Williamson. You know, he was still stood up tall. And I used to see him. I took my mom to for brunch in, in our little town. And he and his wife would always come in there and they always spoke. And, you know, it was just wonderful to see him for the last five years of his life and him still being is just as gentlemanly as he could possibly have been and soft-spoken and in his mind. You know, I mean, he did so much for this. First outpatient surgery center and to start Ooze. How cool is that? Pretty pretty cool. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) It is. One other organization, which is potentially one of the most influential organizations, is is Cedars Aspen. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been involved with the Aspen side for a long time. Do you want to talk a little bit about that organization? Sure. Well, I'm one of the original winos. Women in ophthalmic surgery, we had to change the name to Aspen's. It was myself, Sherry Rowan, Denise Visco, Lisa Fulner, and Maria Scott. And we had the idea for Aspen's of how can we empower women? How can we empower them to know that they don't have to reinvent the wheel to have plans to draw, to build a surgery center or an office or set up an exam lane? There should be some kind of way that we can put all our thoughts in one basket and be able to help those women that are doing that. Because you don't have to invent the wheel. You have to know who to ask, what architect to ask, what builder to ask, who's good in what area, who to stay away from. Some industry is really great helping young ophthalmologists get started by giving them a great loan interest rate. At least for me, you know, I was 100% financed. (laughs) You know, you didn't put anything down and the interest rate was nothing. But we did it that way. And then we talked about, you know, how do we improve our skills, you know, and teach them how to improve their skills and having them come to our offices is a good thing because, you know, you look at Maria Scott and Denise Visco, two of the busiest female and Maria just retired pretty much completely. Denise is on the way and Maria's older. Denise is younger. No, Maria's my age, but Denise a little bit younger, but you know, they do three, 4,000, five, 6,000 cataracts a year. And Maria was in a group and she was PE group bought her, but and Denise and Lisa, but Maria was the most efficient surgeon I've ever seen. She knew how long, exactly how long the femta would take, exactly how long it would take to move the patient from point A to point B, change her gloves or whatever she needed to do. And she was so efficient. I've never known anybody like that. I don't know how she was like a robot. I don't know how she did it, but that was the original plan was to make it easier on our new lady colleagues that are coming into to ophthalmology and to have a place for them to talk about how hard it is to be a mom and leave your child with the daycare or with a sitter, you know, and that, that it was normal. And all of us were at different stages in our life, the five of us. Some had young children, some had already had grandchildren, some didn't have any. So it was really neat. And then we said, oh, well, we need to ask more people. So we started Alice was probably the very first and several others. And then the Cedars had been around for a long time. But anyways, the boy, it was it was a good old boys group. And they used to go to have a meeting someplace every year. And they had so much fun. They golfed and they did all kinds of stuff. But what we realized is, we were a pretty strong group, both of us together, but we would be stronger if we were one because 
you don't always have to agree with Ken Beckman, but you do have to listen to him. And you don't always have to agree with Bill Trattler, but you have to listen to him because they have great ideas. You don't always have to agree with, with me or agree with Sherry Rome, but we have good ideas. And to be able to bounce this off of people and then to ask certain people to join us after being in practice for five years and being board certified and those kind of things, it's pretty awesome. You can learn something every day. And I look so forward to December when we get together for our meeting. It's a great group of people. And as progression goes, I mean, Marguerite McDonald's part of it, as as Sherry and myself, and as we get older and are less active than in Cynthia, we'll bring in Denise and Maria. We're bringing up all kind of new women and men, you know, for it. So, but we are a much stronger group together than we were each individual. And that's really kind of how I look at it. We're so much better if we learn from each other than we are if we say, I can do it better than you. And it's about camaraderie and lifting people up. Absolutely. No, I know you have been, you, you give so much feedback because you're so honest and you care so much about your patients. You work pretty closely with industry. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And just you- Sure. Well, I, you know, I've been very fortunate. I started with Bosch and Loam. It's the first company I ever did anything with. And I have to tell this little side story. Frank Shields, and people may know him or may not, but he's been in, in industry for 26 or 27 years. Well, actually longer than that, probably 30, probably almost as long as I've been. So it's, I've been, I was at his 30th birthday, but he was a pharmaceutical rep and he used to, he met me when I was with Dr. Thomas. I was with him for one year and then he had a heart attack and I just moved my practice down the street. He was a pharmaceutical rep and he said, you know, I really want to get on the surgical side. He used to come watch me in the operating room all the time. And he did his research and then he went after a job with BNL as an IOL rep. And he progressed all the way up, and he was the regional director. He won trips every year because he worked his rear end off. But he knew his customers, and he knew his he knew the lenses, and has an incredible portfolio, and even better portfolio now, but a great portfolio. But I did a lot. I got a lot of product first before I ever was paid. And you know, they sent me to when BNL bought Chiron, Tristalins, and Trueline with Andy Corley and, and Michael Breen and Tom Frenzy. Frank was with the Chiron part too because he he went there for some with BNL and Chiron was bought out and so I had this relationship with Frank and he just he get went higher and higher in his position and I, and I just stayed right there with BNL and met him and he gave me a lot of opportunities they gave me a lot of opportunities female first because I was female and there weren't a bunch of KOLs that were women I remember meeting Sherry at one of the meetings for Crystalins and she was a big Crystalins user as was with uh, Williamson. Chuck and uh, Stephen Slade. So I got to meet all these people for them. And then I just, then I branched out when I really stepped off to do premium surgery, if you will, or up my game, I became a KOL for wave tech. And then I became a KOL for Lenzar with my relationship with them. And like, I was appreciating John Doan's comments today because a pharmaceutical is something I did do the original Bezvant study and it was published and Marguerite was the lead author on it. And I am listed in the authors of that, but pharmacy is not quite, pharma is not quite, as much fun as, as actual hands-on doing, you know, I'm a surgeon first, not a pharmacologist, but, but don't get me wrong because I, I am doing some stuff hopefully with BNL with the, their drive products. But I think that toys are still more fun. Than, yeah. Uh, toys are so much more fun, but <laughs> industry has been good to me too, but I'm also, you have to be true to yourself. I don't really yeah. talk about a product if I don't really use it. I was never really an Alcon person until, until Aura was bought by Alcon or WaveTech was bought by Alcon. And then the team that I had worked with, Tina Williams, Michael Breen, Deanne, all these wonderful outcomes people, 
Padrick, Tom Padrick, who's retired, all these geniuses that worked at that company, they stayed with Alcon for a little while. And I, and I went over and I did work with Alcon. And then I, once the Clarion material came out, I, I started using Panoptics and I really am happy with that platform. And it has its limitation, as does every platform. But I'm really happy to, to you know, I do a lot of panoptics, a lot of clear and panoptics. But the surgical aspect of it is wonderful. And sharing my knowledge on how did I get such good outcomes with X, Y, or Z to be able to teach that to somebody else. And I think the companies that I'm a KOL for, I think I do a good job for them. I think they ask me because I am honest. And I'll say, well, this doesn't cut it. I can't stand this inserter. And you've got to do something about it. But I don't talk for everybody. Right. And for those who are listening who don't know, KOL is a key opinion leader. Yes. And Frank Shields was most recently kind of in the news for selling Abantis or being Yes, yes. And now Abantis, he's in a new. Uh, with Hydras to, to Alcon. Now he's in a new yeah. role with another. Yeah, Glaucoma. Yeah, Elias. Right, so. And he married, he performed the ceremony for my daughter for her wedding How about that? six years ago. And Frank, you know, is still rocking and rolling. He's always looking for a new I'm, idea. I'm, I'm going to ask Frank to be on the show. Yeah, hope, well, he's, he's yes. a wonderful guy. <laughs> he's, he's a wonderful guy. And he's got a great radio voice. So. He's my best pal, and I love him with all my heart and his wife and children. But that's the kind of industry. And, and you know, he, he emulates himself after Andy Corley and Tom Frenzy. I think that's what people don't realize right. is Andy Corley, Tom Frenzy, Frank Shields, these, these giants in industry, right. your average ophthalmologist may not know who they are and what they've done for us, right. and more importantly, for our patients. Absolutely. Because if they don't push those devices through, right. if they don't get multifocals or what Andy Corley did with CMS, if none of that happens, right. we're not right. where we are today. Yeah, and without Andy, we wouldn't have a premium line of anything. Right. You know? And he's the easiest, sweetest guy you ever want to know. You know, Loved his mom and daddy. You know, I mean, he's just a great he's a great friend and a great guy, and I'm, I'm happy for his success, but he continues to help us like, like Dick Lindstrom and and Tom Frenzy, you know, I, I love Tom Frenzy because he's always, he is small and mighty and he rules with an iron fist, but he's kind and yep. he knows good technology and built link. You know, I mean, we have a lot of great industry people and I'm so fortunate to have, to know them as friends and to love a couple of them, you know, so. Absolutely. Well, yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been amazing. I've, it's been so sincere and genuine, and I, I love I love all of our conversations. But this one was really special. I love getting to talk about Ralph Berkeley for right. the obviously one of my mentors, and, and my practice still carries his namesake. Right. So thank you for that. You're more than welcome, and he would be very, very proud of you. Very proud of you. Thank you. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.